Reading Babette in 2024 can be an uncomfortable experience, given how much the world has changed since the late 90s and early 2000s. As a militant leftist, primarily known for conducting small arms training and resistance organizing among anti-fascist communities, it often comes as a surprise that I spent years living with a World War II-era Nazi sympathizer. I've avoided soft-peddling this fact. Babette was a very charismatic and charming and in many ways sympathetic individual, but there is little doubt she would have enlisted in the Waffen-SS, alongside her childhood friend Fouquet, were she only slightly older. She went to her grave considering Hitler a misunderstood genius, and died while in the process of scheming how to trick her church into giving a mass in his honor. I remind listeners of this because it's easy to become captivated by Babette's eccentric personality, becoming lost in her adventures and diverse passions. While I was a committed leftist before my years with Babette, and to this very day, it's important recognizing the political environment this book took place in. I never described myself as an antifascist in those days because it seemed as redundant as calling myself an abolitionist or anti-monarchist. People who still used the term appeared oblivious to big-picture social threats. The racism of the prison industrial complex and banking institutions whose predatory loans drained resources from the global south appeared as our true enemies, not boomer anachronisms in clan hoods or bonehead kids with stick-and-poke swastika tattoos. I moved to Portland several years after the infamous early 90s physical conflicts between neo-Nazis and opposing subculture youth had faded out. The fascists lost and were largely pushed out of town. I would occasionally encounter their remnants at parties out in the suburbs, immersed with jobs and young families, battle-scarred but less violent for the moment. Lots of death rock and industrial bands I've loved also used fascist imagery in various contexts, and only a real killjoy from the fun police would care if some dark ambient project with 36 fans outside Belgium printed stills from Laney Riefenstahl films on their 7-inch singles. As I then remarked to friends who found my living situation incongruous and bemusing, Yes, Babette was an unrepentant Nazi sympathizer, but at least an amiable one, and no one was getting hurt. Yet? Revisiting those times now feels jarring on many levels, because, of course, people are getting hurt, and few know that firsthand better than myself. After 2016, when right-wing groups began regularly invading Portland and aligned individuals committed mass murder sprees nationwide, from El Paso to Pittsburgh to Charleston, I spent years on the front lines defending my immediate region and also out in rural parts of Oregon where threats against queer folks and communities of color were even more heightened. I have seen the children of other leftists stalked, received my own share of death threats, had my children's lives directly threatened by local fascists, and one dear friend of mine miraculously survived her body being shot full of bullets in one of the more recent far-right attacks in Portland. Babette was correct that the old times of anti-globalization struggle seemed like a game, and someday the hammer would come down. After watching another friend's head cracked open after being fired upon at point-blank range by a cop with a concussion grenade launcher, there's no denying her point. 
So, my opposition to fascism is far from academic, steeped in blood over years while directly countering it in the streets. Some have criticized writing about my relationship with Babette in a world where trans lives and rights are increasingly under attack and politically demonized like never before. There is an argument to be made that further raising her profile may inflame prejudices against trans individuals. I recognize that, but feel the value in sharing her story outweighs such concerns. My times with Babette are too significant to suppress, illuminating the variety of ways fascism exists outside common stereotypes. By the same token, her example breaks down ultimately harmful tropes portraying trans and non-binary folks as victims without significant agency. Babette, and also her foil, Mother Superior, provide fascinating glimpses into ways that non-cisgender folks have historically not merely existed, but created full lives for themselves within outwardly hostile societies. I'm proud to share about my years with Babette and hope her story can uplift others, leading toward a more accepting world that I wish had existed to welcome and cherish her on the plains of central Washington in 1928. So, here are some frequently asked questions about my book. Was Babette's relationship with the judge and Billy Shoemaker a polyamorous triad? I would say no, and certainly not in a sexual sense, but you could maybe call the relationship that the judge and Billy and Babette had emotional kitchen table poly. It's a really fascinating dynamic and just so compelling to me because what happened with the judge is a story that almost sounds completely typical when you first hear about it. A successful man who has a family and then gets older and has more success in life and then marries a much younger woman, except it goes beyond that because, of course, the judge was a full enough individual to recognize that he was not going to be a vigorous enough partner to satisfy this much younger person for her entire life, and so got to a point where he recognized, well, this maybe isn't the way I had exactly planned things to work out, but I want the person I love to have a satisfying life. So, okay, if you've fallen in love with this person, cool, but let's try to find a way that our relationship can also survive. And they did it. They, by all accounts, were able to have a very tender and loving relationship between the three of them, and they lived together, and they traveled together extensively. And it's really a remarkable and beautiful thing that they were able to have in that part of their lives with each other. Did Babette commit suicide? That is a very interesting question to me, and it's something that was certainly a preoccupation of Babette's. I remember when I first moved into her house, one of the very first conversations we had was concerning her wanting to know ways that if she had to suffocate herself using the car, how, what would be the best way to do it? And I don't know if that was just because she hadn't obtained whatever pills that she did keep in the library at that 
that point, or if she was just thinking of some kind of backup plan. I, I'm not quite sure. But it was something that she spent time thinking about, clearly. And there there was certainly a, a couple of times where she, in fact, mentioned her suicide stash in the library. And I thought it was strange, but at the same time, compared to everything else in her life, one of many strange aspects to her. So it was quite a surprise when, after she died and I was beginning to look through the house, I thought to check in that spot and they were absolutely gone. And I never, ever came across those bottles. And I have no idea exactly what was in them. Some people have suggested to me that perhaps something to do with the visit from her sister slash daughter pushed her into a place where she decided that she just wanted to end it in a spectacular way, maybe in, in some kind of a way to hurt that person. I don't know, but I think not. Partly because Babette was such a conceived individual in planning things out just the way she wanted them. And to find out from her lawyer, indeed, that just a, a short while after she died, that she had planned to have a meeting to talk about her will. And it's hard for me to imagine that she would have left something like that that presumably would have been very important, just uh, unattended to. So I don't know what I can say about what happened with the suicide pills, if indeed they even were suicide pills. This could have been something she was making up just to impress me or shock me, because Babette loved nothing better than impressing and shocking people. So I don't know for sure what to say about that, but I suspect it was not suicide. Wouldn't Babette's story be better told by someone less cis? Yes, I think there is something to that question, which I have been presented with on occasion. And yeah, it is certainly a fact that I am a super butchy cis man. And I definitely get why a person's story is frequently going to be best told by someone with a similar background. The same as if a biography of Malcolm X is going to probably be the most valuable if it's written by another black person coming from a similar background who is really going to get the story in a way that someone who looks like me is not going to as effectively. So yeah, there is definitely something to say about that. And I hasten to remind people that I have not written a biography. I think that a biography of Babette would be fascinating. And if anyone someday decides to attempt such a project, I would happily share any information I have to that person or organization or whoever it might be. It is not something I am going to do myself. I do not own Babette. What I have written is a story about a relationship with a person, and it is told from my own perspective to the best of my ability. Babette's house sounds super creepy. Was it haunted? So... There were a few weird incidents that occurred while I was living in Babette's house, and I did not include them in the book because enough weird, unbelievable stuff occurred that I didn't want to pile on things that might cause people to just doubt the entire thing and not even give it a chance. I am not saying that I think it was haunted, but I will say some weird stuff happened. You share a lot of personal bodily details about Babette. Isn't that disrespectful? 
So this is something I put a lot of thought into while deciding how authentically to share the story. Babette loved being very explicit, and she certainly loved sharing her body. She was definitely naked most of the times in our house together. If there is a point that I don't describe her, it probably means she didn't have any clothes on at all. And she frequently liked to use her body in that way to shock people and put people off. Uh, if I had friends over, I think that there was one or two points that I, I mentioned that she would like to expose herself in ways to make people uncomfortable. And it was something that she did in a calculated way because she absolutely loved shocking people, but in ways that couldn't hurt her professionally or in, or in ways that she did not get an advantage out of. So in death, she is much more free to let herself be shocking, and she would absolutely love that. I think she would adore offending everybody's sensibilities on that regard. And there was only one point where I hesitated. That was the one case where I shared what was in the envelope that she was telling her friend in Canada to burn and not reveal what was inside. I did go back and forth on that a little bit, and I ultimately decided to talk about it because I felt like that was a case of her seeking more drama. I think that that was the kind of thing that she she liked to do. She loved to exaggerate. She loved to try to find ways to manipulate a situation. And I can easily see her giving a person pictures with very explicit photographs of herself and then saying, if I die, absolutely never open this. Never open this at all. Make sure you never open this. And then giggling the whole time, thinking about what it would be like someday when, of course, they open it. So that was my interpretation of that event and how I decided to come down on it. Was Babette aware the FBI surveilled her? I don't believe so. It's the kind of thing that I think she might have mentioned if she was aware of it in the sense that she liked to brag about events in her life that might be a, a way of intriguing people. Because in as much as she was a person who genuinely had a very strange and bizarre past, she also liked to occasionally exaggerate even mundane parts of it just completely unnecessarily. Like she told me stories about being involved with the FLQ in Quebec, which I don't believe at all. I think she completely made that up just because it sounded sensational. And maybe she spent some time in Quebec in the 60s and knew some people that were involved, just enough to give her a taste for talking about it. So my impression is that if she had, at some point in her life, gotten wind of an FBI investigation, it might have scared her at the moment, but might have become something that decades and decades later she would brag about and say, oh, well, that was, of course, back in the days when I was on one of the FBI's wanted lists or something like that. I could, I could easily see her turning that into something to brag about. And in fact, she mentioned to me the incident where she first got on their radar. I remember her a couple of times talking about how in her early days in America, she was anxious to hear Hitler's speeches. And the only place to find them, of course, before the internet, was she had to go to a local radio station. And they were very nice. And they would always let me come and listen to Hitler's speeches. And I think she was completely unaware that those people were absolutely horrified at what she was doing and couldn't dial the FBI fast enough. 
What was Babette's relationship with others in the LGBTQ plus community? She was a trans pioneer and she was able to pave the way for a lot of people that came along behind her. However, that's not why she did the things she did. She was an individual entirely focused on herself and her well-being personally and professionally. I think that after she transitioned in the early 90s and was able to get away with it, which was very calculated on her part, she realized that socially this was something that would no longer cause her to lose her job. And then afterwards, it seems likely that she realized, oh, well, I, I am aware that in some places there are now student and faculty groups focused on gay rights and queer issues. And maybe if I get involved starting that at my college, it could actually benefit me professionally and personally, because I think Babette largely viewed getting involved in the local queer scene, such as it was at that time, largely to expand her dating pool. And I say that because there were several times where we were driving around town and she would make comments, like she would point out a restaurant and say, oh, this was a place that we had meetings back when I was starting that group on campus. And then she would almost immediately shift into a description of a very beautiful lesbian who I was quite attracted to. And I would get the impression that at these kind of meetings where other people were actually trying to focus on things that benefited their community, she just really wanted to hit on other people she found attractive and was probably very off-putting. I suspect she realized before too long that that wasn't going anywhere and withdrew. I would say that her relationship with that community was predatory and fraught. Did Babette speak German? Babette often remarked how strange it was that she did not speak German. There were several times that it came up because she did spend so much time traveling and so much time in Germany, and she was a complete Germanophile and very good with languages. She spoke French and English and Spanish fluently and was very well-versed in Latin, but knew very little German, and she would often talk about how frustrating it was when she was young and listening to the German broadcasts and not knowing what people were saying, and living in Germany later and not being able to communicate except in one of her other languages. I don't know why she never made that a particular project. I think that she just always had something else more important. But it was something that she herself remarked upon and thought was strange about herself, that she had never learned to speak German. Before the book came out, how was Babette viewed by the Portland trans community? So because Babette was only really involved with any kind of trans or queer community at all for a brief period in the early 90s, there wasn't really much institutional memory of her that carried on as far as I'm aware. One thing that I found quite fascinating was some years ago, I was working with a trans man who had been part of a documentary and was pretty well connected with a lot of folks in that community. And we were talking and he was saying how before my book came out, he had heard that there was a very strange professor who had been at Portland Community College and many other universities and transitioned to become her dead wife. And that was obviously Babette, but I found it so curious that just that part of her story had come down through some people's memory that that was the first thing that someone thought of 